to this episode of Dublin's Historic South, where I, Laura Fitzsachary, will be joined by guest hosts in discovering the townlands of South Dublin and delving into the history by looking at why we refer to Dundrum as Dundrum, what life was like in 13th century Dunnybrook, and how Tala now has roughly the same amount of people in it as the population of Andorra. As we go through the south side, I will shed light on place names, social history and the area as it is today, with this month's episode focusing on the area of Clondalkin. And I am delighted to be joined this month by Trisha Ryan. Thank you so much for returning to the show. Last time you were here, we spoke about Harold's Cross. And I asked you if you'd be interested in coming back for a Viking heavy episode. So you're here. Thank yes, you. I'm here and I'm so thrilled to be back again, Nora. Thank you for asking me to come back for ah, this episode. No problem, delighted to have you. But this month's Townland then, as a result of a Viking heavy episode, yes. <laughs> which we thought would be perfect, was Clindalkin. And you said you would agree. Thank you. Uh, it is quite Viking heavy, as we've already well established. So <laughs> strap in. But... So just to remind everyone, Trisha is an archaeologist and historian from Waterford. She's based in Dublin now, with a background in Irish archaeology and museum education. She spends her days talking about everything from Bronze Age artefacts to Viking invasions because she works in education and has a BA in archaeology and history with an MA in archaeology. Having been published in the field as well, you can imagine that she was perfect then for an episode (laughs) all about the Vikings and also from Waterford. Yes, (laughs) Waterford. (laughs) Waterford has a very strong connection um, to the Vikings. Again, it's one of the towns in Ireland that was established by the Vikings and then later became a city. So yeah, lots, lots to talk about there. But we're going to focus on Clondalkin today. I won't won't make too many references to Waterford. But you didn't say you'd make none at all. (laughs) No, I didn't say I wouldn't make any. (laughs) (laughs) There'll definitely be a few. Uh, So to get stuck into Clondalkin then, so... Clondalkin or Clundalkin or Dolkin's Meadow was located on the banks of the river Camac, still is, is obviously referring to the topographical feature and suggesting that Dolkin was the proprietor or owner or landowner of this meadow. Show regular Francis Elrington Ball, which we usually mention, he, he goes on to talk about this a lot in the history of Dublin. Now, Clondalkin is situated on the heights over the estuary of the River Liffey, so it's guarded, it's guarding the inland pass between the mountains and the river. Of course, this means that there is an advantage to this location. There is an evidence of a Neolithic settlement and that was found in around now where 15 Monastery Drive is and also when the dual carriageway was being constructed in the 80s. Now that site had been continuously used right through into the Bronze Age and early Christian Ireland but I mean, like a proximity to a river would have been paramount to those living in the Stone Age. And in Clondalkin, as you mentioned, that was the Camac, that would be the river. It, it forms a flow from Mount Seskin, southeast of Sagart, to the southwest of Dublin City and other mountain streams, as well as an 18th century diversion from the British River tributary of the Liffey. The Camac then flows through Clondalkin village opposite the Garda station and down Watery Lane aptly named, flowing on towards Nanger Road and meeting tributaries in what's now the Industrial Bluebell and Robin Hood estate areas. It then travels through the Lansdowne Valley to residential Drimna and Crumlin. And we mentioned this river briefly back in episode two, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yeah. So it's nice to kind of bring in some things from the last episode I did with you, Laura. So yeah, yeah. and there'll be a few of them as well, because we're focusing, of course, mainly in early Christian Ireland and then going on to the Viking invasion here. But also... Speaking of, of, of early Christian Ireland, Christianity arrived in East Leinster in the 5th century and its base at Clondalkin is ascribed to St. Cronon, 
also known as Makua. Now, we spoke briefly about the Ma in the last episode, which was referring to Welsh missionaries. We were talking about Dunleary. But according to Aubrey Gwynn, her work is well known in the uh, in this field. Makua, or Cronon, was a pupil of St. Kevin of Glendalock. Not very famous at all, of course. No, no, Mm-mm. very few people know Very few people know that. St. Kevin, of course. Of course, <laughs> quite famous. But this, there, there is very little surviving from the original monastery. And we'll talk about that a bit later, which was situated now roughly where St. John's Church is mm-hmm. today. The protective enclosure that surrounded it is still seen in today's streetscape. Mm. We'll be talking about that too, from Orchard Road with the garden sloping from the road level, formed on the boundary on one side. It then continues then Main Street and curves to the west of the Round Tower. Mm. So actually, a fragment of the Mass Book of Clondalkin, one of the few remaining links of the monastic settlement, is preserved in the library of Karlsruhe in Germany. Yeah, just just to kind of talk a little bit bit more about the introduction of Christianity to Ireland, which obviously had a very big impact on Clondalkin and it being established as a later on into a town. So, Laura, just as you mentioned there, Christianity kind of came to Leinster in the 5th century. Where we tend to date the beginning of the introduction of Christianity is, of course, with our our patron saint, St. Patrick, who is reputed to have arrived in Ireland in 432 AD. Now, there is actually, there were some Christians already in Ireland at the time, and particularly down in the south of Ireland. And we have a number of what we call pre-Patrician saints, such as St. Dathan in Ardmore, down in Waterford, and then St. Ciaran of Sigar, who's associated to um, the island, particularly of Cape Clear down in Cork. So what's really interesting then is that particularly in the south of Ireland, that tends to be, that was converted first and then it spread up towards Leinster and into Ulster. And we see this a little bit more in the archaeology because there's actually far more places in Leinster and in the northern half of the country attributed to St. Patrick, whereas in the south of Ireland, it was already converted. Mm. So those areas tend to be associated with other saints. So just with the establishment of Christianity, the church started to become more powerful. And um, essentially, then they started to build monastic or ecclesiastical centres. And that's what we eventually see then at Clondalkin. Yeah, and the reason why we are mentioning monastic sites or monasteries at all is because of what it would become, as you were mentioning, how they were gaining this this power, this popularity, and really influencing both social, economic, and political spheres of Irish society. But the monastery was sufficiently important at Clondalkin in its size and wealth to be plundered by the Vikings when they would later arrive. Now, there's conflicting logs and annals yes 832 833 they tend to kind of sway between the two so for the for the efforts of being you know Mm. balanced between 832 and 833 was the viking invasion or arrival into clondalkin shortly afterwards clondalkin then became a base for viking activities in this area and the base was established by olaf the white now that term of course is actually a term that was used by the norse to to describe him the first norwegian king of dublin as he's also referred to is recorded only once in the annals so whether that's a self self-proclaimed king of dublin uh, it is obviously a, a whole different lecture in and of itself but when Clondalkin was attacked and captured then again in 876, it would be by two Leinster chieftains. So it's the Irish arriving back into Clondalkin. Mm. Now, Olaf is usually pronounced as Aulav, And Aulav, of course, a much 
much different spelling. It's an Irish spelling. Uh, for the listeners, it's A-M-L-A-I-B. And that's really important because we'll be getting to place names a little bit later on again. But Olive's fort at Clundolkin was burnt by Gothina's son, Kinetic. And male Ciaran, son of Ronan, and the aforesaid commanders caused a slaughter of a hundred of the leaders or what we would now call dukes or duches, of the foreigners in the vicinity of Clundolkin on the same day. Mm. So this is a, a, a this is a, an attack from the Irish back on Clundolkin. This entry suggests that there were other Viking settlements, though, in the vicinity of Clundolkin, so not just those belonging to Aulo. But the exact whereabouts of these and the fort itself are unknown, according to Gerard McInnichol. He has a great book called Ireland Before the Vikings, but speaking of that period in time, the historian Podrick Murphy notes that St. Cronan Makua died in 630 AD, with his feast day celebrated on the 6th of August. What is interesting is that despite the later Viking arrival, the foundation continued after St. Cronan Makua, as the names of abbots and the bishops of Clondalkin were recorded right up until 1080 AD. So despite any kind of Viking arrival or attack onto this monastic settlement, it continued to survive right up until the 11th century. This then suggests that the Viking base was not exactly on top of the monastery, but rather outside it. And this idea of where exactly the Vikings were has been batted around by the likes of John Bradley. But there is a strong evidence that the Vikings left and returned later in the 10th century. Some of which may have been Christian at that stage or converted to Christianity. And so the monastic base survived. We will be getting all onto this as the episode goes on. Though if we try and imagine what the Vikings would have seen when they arrived in Clondalkin, it's this early monastic site and it may have been distracting from the, the proximity to fresh water. And that's, of course, the monastic site, which would at this stage, of course, be missing the round tower. <laughs> so like it is visible from all directions now as the dominant feature of Clondalkin village. It's also the star of this month's Archaeology Ireland, if, yep. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm to recall. But I'm also saying this on purpose, which we'll also discuss, because the Clondalkin Round Tower is interesting. It's quite skinny in terms of round towers. Actually, it's much more slender. It's about 13 metres in circumference, and you don't really get that tapering at the top, which you do in other round towers. Joe Williams, who did great work in Clondalkin's history, noted this, and I'll be mentioning him a lot as the episode goes on. Unfortunately, we also know that there are no records existing which indicate exactly when the tower was built. But the odd shape of it suggests that it could have been one of the earliest round towers in Ireland, as if the shape isn't exactly right yet and they're still kind of tampering with it. These towers demand your eye and your focus and have caused so many <laughs> debates. Even in 1725, you have Dr. Molyneux, who argued that they were of Danish origin. By 1833, our mate... George Petrie, always referring to him, in an essay for the Royal Irish Academy, refuted these suggestions, stating that the towers were the symbolic central feature of the early Celtic church. But this debate is still very much ongoing, is it not? Yes, it is. And even the general function of round towers, it, it's, it is debated to an extent, but there's also a lot of misconceptions out there about them. The most obvious and the most common one is that these were built as defensive structures against the Vikings. And that that is just simply not the case. 
The reason that we know this and why this argument doesn't really stand anymore is that the Viking started to rage in Ireland at the end of the 8th century. Um, the earliest recorded attack was in 795. Again, this comes from the annals and it was either at Lambay Island or Rattlin Island. There's a little bit of dispute around the translation. So the exact location is still a bit unknown. So I, I know that you mentioned there the, tra- the the debate in the translation as to where the Vikings originally arrived. But the term Viking itself, we've mentioned it a lot on the show, but it's very interesting to get to the origin of who they are, why they're even here at all. Yeah, the the word Viking itself is very interesting. So obviously they didn't go around calling themselves Vikings. Like that's a name that history has essentially given them. And there's kind of two ways of where we think the word has come from. One of them is that Vic is derived from the old Norse word that means bay or inlet. So there is always very strong um, sea connections to the word. Later, it became associated with marauders and pirates. And they were essentially Scandinavian seaborne raiders. And the other, the second place where we kind of see it from is that these Scandinavian seaborne raiders in the summer months would essentially go on a Viking. And that was a way of describing the activity of that sea exploration at the time. These people were essentially Scandinavian seaborne raiders who in the summer months would go on a Viking as a way to describe their sea exploration. And we're going to be talking a little bit about what they were doing here just after the break. Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9. This is Dublin South FM. So welcome back to Dublin's Historic South. I'm still here, Laura, and so is the lovely Trisha. Thank you so much. And just before the break, we were just discussing the origin of the word Viking and we were wondering why they were even here. So we were looking at the Vikings in terms of why they're coming in particular to monastic sites and the connections then to round towers. So just kind of linking to that misconception that round towers were built as defence structures against the Vikings. Essentially, the monastic sites themselves became really important centres, religious centres, and they started to make very fine objects made out of gold and silver. These objects, such as the outer chalice, um, the Darren of Fland Horde, which can be seen at the National Museum, is just an example of the type of objects that would have been found at such centres, as well as that they were making very fine books and manuscripts, so just like the Book of Kells as well, and also very fine shrines and reliquaries, all of these being made out of gold and silver. That is exactly what they want, the Vikings wanted to get their hands on. They were looking for these type of objects, but in particular, they were actually more interested in silver than they were in the gold. And essentially what they would do is they would raid a monastic site, they would get their get their loot, they would divide it all up between each other, and then each person would get a piece from the from what they had raided. So they would then take the silver at this time, particularly around the seventh, eighth century, like they're not using money yet, they're still trading. So they would just kind of pick up the bits and pieces that they had. They would melt down. They might make it into an arm ring or into a brooch. The arm rings are very interesting because what they would do is to, if if you had done a raid and you had all these little bits in silver, like it's not very convenient to have these little bits of silver in your pocket. So they would just melt down into a single piece as an arm ring. And then if they're in the market or whatever and they needed something something to buy, they would just break off a little piece. So they were literally going around with their wealth on their arm and they would just break it off as they needed it. So going back then to the Round Towers, the main concentration of these attacks were in the 8th and into the 9th century. However, 
during the 9th century, that's when they began to settle in Ireland and establish what we now call as Viking towns. So this is particularly in Dublin, in Washford, in Limerick, but you also have um, Wexford and there's evidence in Cork as well. How this relates back to the Round Tower debate is that these were first constructed in the 10th century. So it's nearly, it's over 100 years since the Viking raids have stopped. They're now already living here in Ireland. They're not raiding these monastic centres as well. So if they weren't built in defence of the Vikings, what were they built for? So this goes back to George Petrie and the work that he done. So Petrie pointed out that Irish Round Towers were often referred to as Clocktiocht, which means bell tower. So they were more than likely used to call people for prayer and to mark out the day. Another interesting feature of them is that many of the round towers have the four windows at the top are pointed to the cardinal points. So to an extent, they could have been used as watchtowers. Another thing to remember is that when the round towers have been built, this is happening around the same time as a series of church reforms to bring the Irish church in line with Rome. So essentially what was happening is Ireland was converted to Christianity they had their own interpretation of Christianity and they had their own kind of Celtic church. The church was gaining more power. Rome copped on as to what was happening in Ireland and they essentially needed Ireland to come into line with the Roman church. So a way of doing this was to really establish the church and that brought about a series of church reforms from the 10th up to the 12th century. And part of that is nearly all monastic or ecclesiastical centres were trying to reassert their claim and a really good way of doing this was by building round towers it was a really good way to kind of establish yes we have a founding saint we know who it is and we want to be able to establish that ourselves as a see essentially as a as a bishopric so it was really good to ensure that they were able to make that claim one of the features of round towers that always lends itself to the idea of them being a place of refuge is the height of the doorway. So I'm sure many of you have seen they're at quite a height, like you can't just walk in, you do kind of need to climb up to them. And the argument for this is that they would get attacked, the monk and the priest would climb up, they'd be able to swing up the rope and people wouldn't be able to climb in after them. But in fact, when you look at the relationship between the round tower and the remainder of the monastic site, quite often the door itself is pointing towards the earliest church or feature in the area. Because I think, the, not that I laugh, but the idea of a monk just like putting a relic or a book under his arm and running up a tower <laughs> just seems to escape the Vikings just seems... I can see the allure as to why that would be a great theory, but yeah. I, I mean, it's probably a little bit inconceivable. What I really enjoy there is, and you were mentioning there, how Ireland had kind of taken its own tract or their, their own way of establishing a, a powerful Christian core in, in the country. And I, I remember, because this, this was basically the basis of my whole MA thesis, <laughs> was the Saints and Radicals in Ireland, but how we even had our own Easter date. Yes, we and calculated Easter differently we than had our what own, they did in Rome. We had our own Easter Rome. We're not happy they were trying to pull no. us into line. But in terms of uh, back to Clondalkin and, and their round tower, it was built on the side of the monastery, as we've already established, by St. Makua or St. Coronon Makua. But his actually dates to the 7th century, as you mentioned, his feast day lands in, in August. But the round tower in Clondalkin is one of, of four remaining towers in County Dublin. 
The other three are located at Swords, Lusk and Rothmichael. And the tower itself stands at 27.5 metres high. And because the stones used in construction are of a rough, undressed variety of local cap limestone, it is then thought to be one of the earlier towers. As we said as well, the drum is extremely narrow and it's only about 4.04 metres at its widest point. So it's a skinny round tower. A most unusual feature of the tower that's actually really pronounced as the buttress at the base of the tower and of course this is constructed with a variety of different kinds of stone or definitely different to the main tower so it was probably added later and what I find the most interesting feature is the series of steps cut into that buttress and that was done in the late 19th century when you had this widespread reconstruction of round towers around the country as and this stage symbols of nationalism yes. more so <laughs> than just symbols of ecclesiastical architecture these steps wind around the buttress and they lead about 3.9 meters up to the base of the east facing doorway and i've heard other theories that there would have been a wooden set of steps that you would roll away to get into the tower. Yeah, that's that's a very, uh, like, so as opposed to just being a ladder, that it's quite yeah. likely that many of the round towers did have a wooden staircase that would have mm. allowed people to go up and access it quite easily. Mm. So the other thing to remember is we're looking at them with only the stone in place today. Exactly, and yeah. they're thinking that they're, the stone t- steps might be a, a more permanent version of this, the wooden ones that came before. I mean, I'm kind of imagining some kind of early Christian version of a styra <laughs> on a wheels and just gets pushed away once the monks are, are in and, and safe. I, I think they're, they're just fascinating. Uh, in the Clondalkin one, though, there's a total of six t- windows in the tower, of which, as you said, the four highest face the cardinal points. So it's a great example of a tower in this case. On the opposite side of the road, is the present Church of St. John, which we'll get to a bit later, but also two early crosses and a granite font, which are remnants of the old monastery. But megalithic Ireland, they're great. They have fantastic photos of the round tower up on their site, but they mention as well that it's 10th, maybe even early 11th century. I would probably put in the 10th because it's one of the earliest versions of the round towers Mm. and it has that lovely conical cap then at the very top as well. Mm. Now the likelihood of towers or round towers being an individual monument of their own accord was originally initiated by the likes of Roger Sally, who has done great work on round towers but that idea is starting to waver it's possible to believe that some kind of prototype or plan was referred back to as such strict rules apply as you mentioned they're referred to as clockhocks or clockchocks uh, which is of course to mean bell tower functioning as such but there is evidence of a medieval bell foundry in Kerry and this suggests the possibility of a large bell being produced because you have to wonder, well, where are the bells now if it's potentially a bell tower? We do find a lot of early medieval bells, particularly dating to the 8th and 9th century and into the 12th century, one of the most famous being St. Patrick's Bell. So these are kind of small, usually iron bells coated in bronze. So we do have evidence for small hand bells dating to the 8th and 9th and into the 10th century. Many of these made out of iron and coated in bronze. Um, the most famous one being associated to St. Patrick. Now, although we can say for certain, yes, that these were the bells that were used in round towers or in churches, there is a strong likelihood that they were used on these sites. They definitely weren't the big bells that we see in churches today. Oh, but yeah. there is a suggestion, like we we do know that there were definitely bells on these monastic sites. Absolutely. And I think the reason why there's probably a lack of evidence, there's a strong theory that there's 
they were melted down and used for military purposes, mm. which wouldn't be at all surprising. There's an account recorded in 1552 of an English garrison of Athlone seizing the large bell from the Cluckchock at Clonmacnoise. So obviously melting it down then and using it for ammo. But early Irish sculpture portrays saints and ecclesiastics holding the bell. So that must be the handheld bell that you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, that's the handheld bell, yeah. So displaying authority. And they're kind of not falling out of fashion, but the clock is obviously gaining prominence then once they are created by the 10th and 11th century. The rule of St. Columbus states that not hearing a bell could not be an excuse for showing up to prayers late, though. As monasteries grew, the bell tower would be the solution to extending the sound of bells across a whole monastic complex. This poses the question then to you, Tricia. If it was a hand bell ringer, but they hardly be expected, this is the climbing I was referring to earlier, to climb 700 feet a day if it's a 100-foot tower or up 27 metres anyway to get to the top. That, that I When you put it that way, Laura, I haven't thought of it in that sense, but that is a very good point. Yeah. Whether they would, if they would do it seven times a day, unless he stayed up there. Unless he just lived up in the tower and just rang the bell every yeah. day or like did like, I'm the bell bell ringer for the next couple of days. Yeah. And did it in shifts. Maybe. That's, <laughs> that's an interesting one. Yeah, the, there that's is- a good question. Thank you. There is a round tower-like structure existing in a 10th century Spanish illuminated manuscript called the Tavara Apocalypse, which is based in Madrid in the Archivo Histórico Nacional. And it shows a multi-storey belfry topped with turrets being pulled by a figure at ground level. Potential suggestion for what could have been happening as an architectural prototype. But what's also, of course, interesting or worthy to note is that you only find these bell towers or these round towers in Ireland and only a couple in Scotland. So... The incredulous prospect of just what I keep mentioning of, of all monks hanging up a rope ladder with, you know, your relics, manuscripts or or bells tucked under their arms. I mean, maybe it is plausible if they're trying to escape away from the Vikings. So in terms then, Tricia, of Viking attacks or Vikings targeting monasteries, because there would have been attacks in the 11th century as well, also in the 10th century. So what you're finding then is that they're going to come across the round towers, which is probably where the original theory then as to them escaping into them may have indeed come from. Mm. So according to the likes of Podrick O'Rean, who's talking about the Glen de Locke, he states that they were raided by the Vikings five times, but only once in the 10th century. So after the tower has been built. The Tower of Kilmacdua is one example of how an easy escape would have been impossible, which is what you were stating earlier on. The ladder would have had to have been nearly 30 feet long to then fit back inside the tower. Mm. It had to be made then of some kind of rubber or flexible material because it won't fit back inside <laughs> once it's been rolled back in. Um, but with only one attack recorded at the likes of Glendalock Post Tower, it is possible that it was not relied upon for defensive use. Yeah, like I, I think... I think we can safely say that round towers as a defensive structure wasn't its primary function. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the round tower itself effectively becomes, as we were just, we hinted at there, more of a national icon then um, due to its distinct form. And there are essentially, well, they are essentially truly Irish. As you mentioned, apart from those two examples outside, which um, we said were in Scotland, they're actually in Perthshire and Angus in Scotland. So it's central to celebrating an idyllic civilization. It becomes an icon of being truly Irish. And during the 19th century, Daniel O'Connell's 150-foot high tower becomes a memorial to him then in Glasnevin in County Dublin and was even planned with the help of George Petrie and allowed it to become synonymous with then what we would refer to as Catholicism and a symbol for the early Gaelic revival. Its imposing nature, as well as the demonstration of ecclesiastical authority, allows a tower to become a symbol for an ideal civilization. And 
then later, you know, fallen heroes. Mm. Which I think is important to acknowledge then that this ideal civilization, this kind of monastic bliss, that'd be a way of putting it. Yeah. Which is it, it, is is interesting because it's getting pulled into line and it's definitely being it's definitely being monitored by outside, particularly by Rome. It's also important then to acknowledge the church reformation in the 12th century, which takes elements of ecclesiastical architecture. They're rebuilding them. Relics are being enshrined in much more elaborate metal casings. Again, your gold, your silver. And it would definitely lean then towards Clondalkin and its tower being one of the earliest versions. Yes, I, I would agree with you. Like when you look at the architectural features of it, it does seem to be a very early version that we're seeing. They are being built up to the 11th to the 12th century. And actually, in fact, one of the last ones to be built is the one down in Ardmore in County Waterford. The reason why we think that that is one of the last ones to be built is it has Romanesque architectural features, which you don't see in Ireland until the 11th and 12th century. So we do have a very strong typology of round towers in Ireland. And with the round tower in Clondalk and of course being our main focus of the episode, we'll be talking a bit more about that monastic bliss just after the break. This is Dublin South FM. So welcome back to Dublin's Historic Site. I'm still here and so is Trisha. Hello. Thank you so much. And just before the break, we were mentioning Round Towers and we were about to ease on into um, monastic life. We had just briefly mentioned earlier that the Viking invasions, of course, tackling or targeting these monastic sites. But what was also interesting in terms of Clindalkin is how it would have actually changed the name or the toponymy of the site as well. So you have Norse settlers and they're building fortresses, but as we mentioned, probably just, just outside the monastery rather than right on top of it. Another name, another referral to Clondalkin would have been Don Aulig. So after their king, Aulif, also known as Don Ali. Now, there's an opinion divided on the origin of the word Clondalkin. So some, of course, mention that it's Dalkin's Meadow or Cluan Dalkin. Of course, that's the name that we go for today or that we refer to it as today. There's also a theory that it may derive from the Danish word for thorn, just Dalk, and the Meadow of Thorns. For a while, that's why it was called Don Ali the fort of the Danish king Oli. Now, that's interesting in, in its own right, but I think Clundalkin is obviously what remained. Now, that could be as what as you were mentioning, because it predated a Viking invasion. And if they're still referring to Mokua right throughout the 11th century, they're also going to refer then to, to Clundalkin as well. Now, Tricia, you mentioned 795 AD, and of course, the first Viking burials dating to then that were found in Ireland. But it's also interesting to note how Ireland itself was then. Of course, producing feats of ecclesiastical architecture. The historian Dovi O'Cronin notes that on the eve of the 9th century, Irish society gave the appearance, in the annals at any rate, of having achieved a happy equilibrium, a modus vivendi, between church and state. With Kana laws promulgated in the provinces of important churches, whilst they and their humbler sister churches were able to take the relics of their founders in circuits. This would thereby raise the consciousness of their flocks and gain some much-needed financial contributions as well. This was referred to as the commutation or commutatio of relics, and it is recorded in the Annals of Ulster by 785 that Ulton's relics were going on their circuit from Ardbacken in County Meath, and by 790 those of Kevin of Glendalough and Mokua of Clondalkin were taken about. Now, I've a little bit for you. The lesser relics of Tola from the Daishi in Waterford we're on circuit in the same year. So. Yeah, that's I have not heard of that saint associated with Washford before. So that's that's information for me, Laura. Thank you for the that. Key, the keyword there was lesser known. But, <laughs> um, 
However, the penultimate entry in the Irish Annals, or for that year, so 794, as O'Cronin states, has an ominous ring to it. The second last entry states that the devastation of the islands of Britain by the heathens. So, of course, insinuating that the Vikings had arrived. So this idea of fierce, savage devils from the sea, our idea of Vikings, I mean, they raided, they stole, they murdered, they burned, but by no means were they the first to do so. Certainly not. (laughs) And so the likes of Pat Wallace and John Bradley also note that Vikings, those of who had come to Ireland, are thought to be mostly from Norway and hence are termed Norse, began raiding the shores of Ireland in the very late 8th century. And their first incursion is thought to have been on the island of Rathlin, as we mentioned earlier. By the 9th and early 10th century, the Scandinavians had begun to settle in Ireland, their urban settlements becoming towns. Dublin itself was one of the most important Viking Age towns in Ireland and indeed Europe at the time. And this importance has been internationally highlighted in the many Viking Age excavations that have taken place in town over many years. The study of South Dublin County would have formed an important part of the hinterland, though, of Viking Dublin. And it was actually considered a distinct area in the Viking Age. This hinterland is mentioned in contemporary sources, such as the Icelandic sagas. And this area broadly includes lands outside of Dublin, extending into Kildare, from Skerries in the north, to Ballygunner in the southeast and Nace to the west. It has been previously suggested that Norse or Hiberno-Norse people largely inhabited and worked in this hinterland, pushing the native Irish to the Wicklow Mountains. Interesting theory, nonetheless. However, this has been difficult to prove archaeologically, as the material culture employed by both groups in this period is very similar. And so separating ethnic Hiberno-Norse from Gaelic-Irish settlements on the basis of archaeological remains and artefacts, that not yet has been possible. Alternatively, it is equally possible that the hinterland of Dublin was farmed by Irish, who then traded and supplied provisions. For Viking Dublin. And the reason why I mentioned the Wicklow Mountain element is because you do see some of it in the place names around. Mm. We'll be talking about that in a, little, in a little while. So you have the monastery of Clondalkin then being attacked in 832 to 833. But then again, you have an attack in 1071 and then in 1076. So this latter wave of Vikings who would have been mainly made up of the Danes or Danish Vikings. And so what you also then have is there's bloody skirmishes happening throughout the history of Clondalkin. Also in 1171 between Richard de Clare or Strongbow and the last High King of Ireland, Roderick O'Conquebar, happening on site during the Norman Conquest. So it is, of course, not exactly as black and white as Irish versus Vikings. And I don't think it really ever, ever was. Even with the Battle of Clontarf, which determines the, as we move into the 11th and 12th century, you would have had Irish and Vikings very much fighting on both sides. And earlier on, even in the 9th century, there would have been serious developments of the Norse. You would have had a fleet of Danes arriving in Irish waters, which were causing all sorts of trouble and confusion for anyone involved into who, who which heathen was who. O'Cronin notes that these were the Danair, Dugal, whose marks survive still in the personal names of Doyle and MacDool, and also in the place name Baldoyle or Baldugal, which of course being the settlement relating to his arrival. What you find is there is a focus of their activities more against the Norse than the Irish, represented by the attacking and sacking of Dublin in 851. Of course, Dublin, very much in the hands of Norse settlers, it is around this time in 853 that the Annals record the arrival in Ireland of Aulev, or Olaf, son of the King of Lachlan. That's really interesting, Laura, because Lachlan, like McLaughlin, essentially means son of Viking. Yeah, Lachlan. So there's a very strong Norse 
slash Viking connection to that person, even within their own name. Yeah, a lot of those those names, of course, even exist today. But the analyst adds that the foreigners of Ireland or Galairn submitted to him and a tribute was paid by to him by the Irish. He gained possession of Dublin and allied with Ivar, another Viking leader, between 863 and 871 AD. Olaf directed his attention to Britain, and this would seriously weaken Viking settlements in Ireland. The northern Enail king, Aed MacNeil, sacked Viking strongholds in the north in 866, making off with sheep, cattle, very important, and 12 score of their heads. In the following year, as we mentioned earlier, Alevdun Fort of Clondalkin in Dublin was burnt to the ground and a, by the Irish chieftains, and a great slaughter of the Viking leaders ensued. Alev got his own back in some way, though, by attacking Armagh in 869. What's really interesting to note here is how the attacks against the Irish are targeting monasteries or important church sites because of the social and political clout that these classical sites held. Would you agree? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. The relationship with the Vikings and the native Irish is at times very, very complex. Like the Vikings tend to get blamed really quickly for any raiding that has happened at all in early medieval Ireland and up to before the Anglo-Normans. But in fact, the Vikings, yes, they did attack many of the ma- of these monastic sites because they knew that they were centres of wealth. But equally, the Irish were also aware of what these sites had. So it was very likely that many of these sites were also being attacked by Irish people. Further to that, the raids by the Vikings only happened for around 40 years when you really look at it, between 795 up to about 841. So this doesn't end the Viking raids, but it really begins that time when they began to settle in Ireland and build what then became these Viking towns. The earliest settlements that the Vikings did create were temporary, mainly over winter camps called Longforts, which took the form of large D-shaped enclosures and were used so that they didn't have to return to Scandinavia each year. And really good examples of these Longforts are found at Anagassan in Louth and Woodstown in Washford. And these are important because they weren't fully established as Viking towns. So archaeologists get an indication of how the earliest Viking settlements possibly pre-Viking towns in Ireland, may have looked like. So essentially from the middle of the 9th century onwards, you get a much stronger Viking presence in Ireland. This further develops into the 10th and the 11th century, and especially at Dublin, where what emerges is a Hibernian Norse culture, where you have a mixture of the Norse and the Irish, Irish culture. And essentially they kind of influence each other, and then you get this own unique style that's very typical of what you find in Ireland and particularly in Dublin. We know about this because we see it in the objects, particularly how they are decorated, objects such as brooches and combs. We then tend to end the Viking period around 1170, which is just at the time of the invasion of the Anglo-Normans, which we have just mentioned there. We mentioned Baldoyle earlier, but there's an interesting link between Olaf and a good three-hour walk away to very near where we are right now called Balali. Now, I mentioned earlier on as well the idea of pushing the, the local Irish or the native Irish out into the Wicklow Mountains. But what's interesting is how there could be a, a link between Vikings heading out this way as well, or coming right up to the cusp, up to the edge of that. I was looking into the toponymy of Balali and kept coming across conflicting statements. The Oli bit is of interest for it sounds very like Donola, as in Aulig, 
But in this case, of course, it's balia or balia aulif, which is aulif nonetheless. But as w- what we would say now, olaf. What is interesting is this common thread that between trying to find out where Baladi came from, the first king of Dublin keeps popping up. And the first king of Dublin building a fort after himself and calling it Balia Aulig or Balia Aulof or the town of Olaf could have been, of course, Aulavik, who we were referring to back in 853, if he was to self-proclaim himself as the first king of Dublin. However, what you also find, uh, the, ter- the determining of the role of king, what does that mean? What weight does that hold? Would it be then what is more recognised now? In hindsight, is who would be determined as king? Because one of the most important first kings of Dublin then would technically be Citric, Silkenbeard, Olufsen. King Citric, of course, then reigning very much at the end of the 10th century, going on to you know mint coins with his own face on them by 998. So Balia MacAulig, or Olufstown, whether that be Olaf as in Aulig or Olaf as in Citric Olufsen, What's really interesting is that there's an Olaf who has kept its kept its name, kept its toponymy, and kept its thread running right in this area until the present day. What you also have then, of course, is this the schools in the area in Balali, still called St. Olaf's, and they have little Viking ships on there on their jumpers as they go to school. And Nave Olaf's a GA club, which came into being in 1981. And, of course, Nave Olaf then getting its name from St. Olaf, from Olaf, this link into the area too. So the crest itself speaks volumes. You have the Viking ship, which is part of the family crest of Olaf, and therefore acknowledges the bloody region, the club's cashment area. You also have this idea of it being a Viking club in a, in a Viking city. This element of the crest then represents the raven as well as a raven on the crest too, which represents a sandy furred cashment, uh, deriving from Raven's Rock on the Wicklow Way. And then you also have the link to Norse mythology with the Valkyrie and the Old Norse Valkyra, just choose of the slain, these female figures who chose who lived and died at, at battle. The Valkyries sometimes depicted as ravens escorted their chosen to the afterlife hall Valhalla, ruled by the god Odin. Then there's an Usher monument on the Nave Olaf crest as well, which represents the Dundrum area, celebrating Dr. Isaac Usher, a resident of the town, renowned for his work in supporting the locality. And the Bottle Tower, an iconic structure of Churchtown, representing the regions in the club's catchment area as well. But of course, I'm obviously focusing on the ship and the raven, these elements of Nave Olaf still existing in the area today. What we did exist then and what we've mentioned to bring it back to Clindalkin is that you do have this idea of the Vikings establishing themselves, maybe even petering out or expanding out into South Dublin. Now, even if we're deciding whether the Vikings are expanding out to South Dublin or not, this episode is, of course, all about Clindalkin. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that site just after the break. Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9. This is Dublin South FM. So welcome back to Dublin's Historic South. Just before the break, we were just about to discuss Clondalkin and how the effects of the monastic site would be still seen on the on the area today. Yes, that's right, Laura. This kind of goes back to what we discussed as part of the Harold's Cross episode. Um, where, I remember it well. <laughs> where essentially many of, our, of the early monastic sites would have been established from about the 7th to the 8th century. These monastic sites all followed a very similar layout. They would have the earliest earliest of the churches at the very centre. This would be surrounded by a circular enclosure and sometimes they will be surrounded by two more outer enclosures again. And what's significant about these is that quite often 
these circular enclosures can still be seen in the streetscapes today. And if you look at the area of Clondalkin, you can see this happening again, particularly around the area of the Round Tower and at Orchard Road, which is east of the tower. Orchard Road curves into parts of the main street towards the south. And if you were to extend this, the tower is then placed more or less at the centre of this enclosure. The west side of the enclosure can't be seen today, but it's very likely that there was one here. Another interesting feature on this is that some excavations have taken place in the area, particularly along the eastern side of the enclosure. The identity of the enclosure as a low earthen bank suggests that the overall shape was oval in nature as opposed to circular. These excavations were undertaken by archaeologist Geraldine Stout and it also uncovered a medieval church with a nave and chancel as part of these. If we take a further look at archaeology.ie and their historic environment viewer, that is a map that contains all the known archaeological monuments in Ireland. The round tower is marked along with the two medieval high crosses, which Laura mentioned earlier, and there is evidence of this of the historic town. To the south of the boundary, there is a suggestion that there may be the remains of a castle here, but its exact location, form and date is unknown. If we stay with the streetscapes of the area, the impact of the monastery and the round tower has had a, another big effect on the area. Many of the new housing estates and streets that have been constructed in the last, say, 30 to 40 years are named after the monastic site itself or linked to it, such as Monastery Gate Green, Monastery Park, Monastery Gate and Monastery Drive. So you can see that even the influence of the town that has grown up around the ecclesiastical site was one thing. But even in more recent years, they really look back to the central part, which is the monastic site. Absolutely. I mean, like so many of the roads are named after. What's also interesting is actually the switch from village to town. And it's highlighted by another great source that we use in the show, which is SouthDublinHistory.ie, which is a project funded by the Department of Heritage in one of its previous forms, and the South Dublin County Council. By the 13th century, the village came under the control of the Archbishop of Dublin, and by then, Clondalkin was described as a town with many inhabitants. This, of course, an effect of Anglo-Norman arrival in Ireland, which I suppose defines or redefines the proto-towns that exist, in some cases from the Hiberno-Norse settlers. Patrick Murphy noted that the town was ruled by a bailiff, and in 1276 we know that a Robert Begg held this position, and there was also a waymaster in the village, which was due to the importance of trade, and we mentioned how there would have been one in Harold's Cross as well. Clondalkin then, as a diocese, was united with the city of Dublin, St. Patrick's Cathedral in 1152, under Archbishop Henri or Henri de Londres. The local Danes, who were then by this time exemplary Christians, surrendered their lands to the church, and Clondalkin became an important ecclesiastical site of learning and prayer. By 1300, Clondalkin is established as a borough, and by 1547, it was recorded that Clondalkin is among the walled and good towns of the county. Now, we also mentioned earlier how there seems to be uh, almost a, a wound on the landscape. The fact that it has been attacked a lot. That continued right into the 17th century. In 1642, the church and the village were destroyed in the aftermath of the 1641 rebellion. Clondalkin had been seized by rebels. So in turn, by 1641, a detachment of British troops end up seizing it and torching the village, destroying some of the local castles like that at Dean's Wrath. 
Other excavations in 1963 also uncovered some massacres in the landscape, roughly to where St Killian's Park is now. As we move from the 17th century into the 18th century, there's a sense of wanting to renew the landscape or redevelop this townland, which is what we see by the 1780s. This is also probably spurred on by one of the gunpowder mills in Glendalken exploding in 1787, destroying the medieval church across from the Round Tower. The explosion shattered windows in Dublin City's Usher Island and even propelled an unsuspecting cat all the way to Ballyfermish. Apparently. Oh my God, the poor cat. The poor cat. These events were reported in one of Dublin Penny Journals, uh, which happened on the day of the explosion. But uh, whether that cat did make it to Ballyfermish or not, deems uh, a mystery, but a uh, very sad case that it it's, did. It's a very sad case of that poor cat did. Um, not, not, not how you would like to go. Absolutely not. So the 18th century, we mentioned earlier how the original monastery was on the site of what is now St. John's Church. Anne Graham and Roy Byrne documented the progression of the parish of Glendalkin in their work from generation to generation. They note that the present St. John Church was opened in 1789 with an open belfry and 12 pews. In need of expansion and restoration, work began in 1834, giving us the Church of Ireland structure we see today. The medieval church which stood on the site was demolished in 1787 to allow work to start on a new church. George Petrie, mentioned here again, noted noted that the original church was of considerable architectural importance and was probably built during the 13th century, measuring 120 feet long and 50 feet wide. As you mentioned, it was dedicated to St. Makua, but all that remains of this earlier church is a column of stonework in the churchyard. There are two early crosses in the graveyard, a larger granite cross, which was possibly a boundary cross for the barony of Upper Cross, of which Clendalkin is a part and a smaller carved cross. So these are the features that we can see now today on archaeology.ie. Another item of note is a large baptismal font carved out of granite. St. John's graveyard was a village graveyard where burials from all denominations occurred for a long period. There are many interesting tombstones within the graveyard, including those of two Catholic parish priests along the back wall. On Sunday the 8th of March 1857, the parish priest Father Moore has a parochial meeting in the chapel house. He proposed the erection of a new church. It is recorded that his suggestion was responded to in a manner unprecedented in the annals of chapel building in Ireland. Certainly a large sum of money was pledged, with many parishioners subscribing 50 to £100 pounds each. The Church of the Immaculate Conception was designed by F.W. Kalbach in the Gothic style and the foundation stone was laid on Sunday the 5th of July 1857 by His Grace the Most Reverend Paul Cullen, Archbishop of Dublin. In a container placed under the stone were coins of Pope Pius IX and of Queen Victoria, along with an inscribed parchment. The church organ was installed by Messrs Telford and first played on the 12th of May in 1867. Of course, Telford is quite a famous producer of organs, very well known. In terms of what may not be so well known, such revelations have been provided to us by the likes of Bernadine Nicola Fodrick, the coordinator of the Clondalkin Round Tower Heritage Group, and Brino Govan from Oris Cronin Irish Cultural Centre. The poor cat who was sent over to Ballyfermit via the explosion was actually revealed in a short piece they provided for the Happy Pair website when they were opening in Clondalkin. 
So a place that's now probably more associated with the vicinity of the Round Tower today. They also reveal Condalkin has produced well-known faces such as Aidan Turner of BBC's Poldark fame, Job's manager Jim Gavin and boxer Bernard Dunn. They mention that one of the oldest GAA clubs in the country as well, Round Towers GAA, was founded in 1884. It was in December of that year, just a month after the GAA, or Gaelic Athletic Association, was founded. A group of men gathered in Clondalkin to form a Gaelic football club, among which were the Errity Brothers, one of whom, Tom, was later to win all Ireland's senior medals with Dublin from 1892, and then also in 94, 98, 99, and in 1902. Towers, or Round Towers GAA, won their first competition, the Balti Boys Tournament, in 1889, and they won their first Dublin trophy, the Junior League, in 1910, with Matt Nolan as their captain. But it was success in the League Slip Tournament of 1928 that's the most noteworthy, because St Mary's League Slip included the two Kildare greats, Larry Stanley and Matt Goff. They also won their first Under-21 Dublin Championship in its inaugural year back in 1964. This same team challenged strongly for senior championship honours right up until 1970. Later players like Paddy Delaney, Tony Delaney, Fred Kavanagh, Michael Egan and Jim Gavin all became holders of all Ireland medals. So of course focusing more on football here but a nice link between history and GAA teams. We also mentioned they've all those earlier on but I think they're more known for their hurling. What I also found interesting was that Clondalkin is home to one of the biggest Irish-speaking populations outside of the Gwaeltacht areas. I found an article on Journal.ie from 2012 which noted that about 1,500 students were receiving their education through Irish and that there should be some recognition for the area to be deemed as a Gwaeltacht area, linguistically rather than, of course, geographically. This comes as a result of Muncher Cronon, which was founded in 1972 to further the use of the Irish language through educational, social and cultural activities. For many years, Muncher Cronon operated from members' houses and various halls around the village. In May 1989, they purchased Orchard House in the centre of the village and renamed it Aurus Cronon, which opened it as a cultural and heritage centre. In 1975 and again in 1988, Muntour Cronon was awarded the Gloria Nail National Trophy in recognition of its efforts to promote the Irish language. In 1991, they were chosen to host on Tiroctus, the yearly national cultural festival. And I can reveal, Trisha, that in yes. 2018, the town of Clondalkin was congratulated by Seth Dublin County Council for being recognised for its daily use of the Irish language in the community and was one of only five towns in the country to have been recognised as Lienra Gwelga in an event held in Croke Park on February 22nd, 2018. Unsurprisingly, particular recognition was given to Aldous Cronon and initiatives such as free Irish language classes in the Clondalkin area. Actually, speaking of Aldous Cronon Irish Cultural Centre, they host lectures given by the Clondalkin Historical Society, who also offer fantastic walking tours of Clondalkin. Interestingly, in 2013, the Centre and Society hosted a lecture entitled Clondalkin's Viking Connections, which I think is a subject that we've certainly covered here on this episode. Trisha, can I just thank you so much for coming on the show today? I mean, as you sit now in the happy pair and you look out to the round tower, which is probably you can understand, of course, this, the importance of this monastic site and probably why it would have been a target for the for the Vikings at all. Yes, yeah, sir. Thank you so much for having me back on. And if if you ever do go out to Clondalk and then go to the Happy Pair, it is certainly a lovely view to have. And it's really nice because where the Round Tower is a very, 
important centre for the community today because the community centre is beside the Red Tower as well. It has significant impact on the people that live in Clondalkin today. Yeah, and while it is the initial attraction there, the development of the North objective can be reflected in by what we know of Clondalkin. You can almost track the Viking objective by just looking at Clondalkin as a as a microcosm of it in a way. Yes, absolutely. And an area that had to withstand attack again and again, its landscape is not only defined by the place name, but the legacy of the townland itself. And why shouldn't it? This archaeological marvel of a tower should be celebrated, though it wasn't built, of course, to hide from the devils of the sea. No, it was not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Trisha. Guys, if you want to follow us on all our social medias, you can get us on Facebook at Dublin's Historic Site, on Instagram at History, on Twitter at Dublin's Historic. You can also email us at Site at outlook.com. Of course, the reading list is available for anybody who would like it. Thank you so much, Dublin South FM, for hosting this show. And of course, the podcast will be up shortly after. And thank you so much again, Trisha, for coming on the show. No problem, Laura. I was delighted to come. We'll catch you next month. Bye. Bye.